Slavery in Africa was a business that had been turned into a successful multinational corporation well before the Europeans globalized it. While the damage was most strongly felt between 15 and 1700 AD, the foundations for the emergence of West African slavery were laid somewhere between 10,000 BCE and the year 500 AD. Why so large of a gap for our estimation? The lack of African written records is part of the reason. The size, geographical, and cultural differences inherent to the continent also contribute. But we know that during this long period of history, the dual revolutions in agriculture and iron caused Africa to experience massive technological, economic, and political changes. One of the few things that stayed the same was the vital importance that slavery represented to the survival of African states. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This is the second of four episodes regarding the West African slave trade. Episode number two, Slavery and the State. Sean Stilwell is an associate professor of African history at the University of Vermont, and his book, Slavery and Slaving in African History, serves as our main resource for this episode. Professor Stilwell explains nation-building in Africa through the concept of what he calls the African big men. By this, he means individuals that were able to gain enough resources that they were able to exert substantial influence over others. Throughout the work, Stilwell does not automatically equate the term big men with any negative connotations. Even though there are plenty of examples of big men that ooze modern-day connections to corruption and dictatorship. A unique African term for leadership in this era is necessary because the process of state-building was fundamentally different in this part of the world. Case in point was how dramatically different they conceptualized the value of land. How valuable land is can be dramatically skewed by where you live. Someone from the middle class living in Chicago could not imagine owning two to three acres which would serve as their own private fenced-in yard. While someone from Wyoming would likely scoff at how little land the 40 acres that had been offered during Reconstruction were. Africa has always had a low population density. Historian J.D. Duran estimates that in 1750, the population density per square kilometer in Africa ranged between 2.3 to 5.8% across the continent. Compare this to the 23 to 27 person per square kilometer living in Europe at the same time. Land was never difficult to find in Africa, but what was challenging was making it productive. 
Anyone who grows up in Indiana as I did knows you must rotate your crops. This typically means leaving a field fallow or empty for one cycle. This rest allows the nutrients to be restored in the ground and sets the stage for the next productive planting. I was not surprised to learn that early African civilizations knew to leave their fields fallow. I was flabbergasted, however, to find out that the majority of African fields had to be left fallow for as much as 10 years, with some farms in the forest zones requiring 25 years of no use for successful restoration of their soil. Before the consolidation of states, it was typical for local African households to be self-sufficient in food production. This ensured that they were relatively economically autonomous and held their fate in their own hands. Since everyone had access to plenty of land, few starved in this system. The production of food in Africa, however, is among the hardest work on the planet. This meant that there were economic incentives to create large families so that your kids could eventually handle the production of food and allow you to branch out your economic interests. For subsistence farming keeps you alive, but it does not generate profit. This is because your labor is tied up in continuous food production. Capitalists view subsistence farming as just spinning your wheels and going nowhere. If everyone is living at a subsistence level, it is hard to establish job specialization. I, for instance, specialize as a teacher. If I were worried about food production rather than food purchasing, I would have little time to take on specialized projects like this podcast for my students. Full-time government officials specialize in running the government. Each hour that they spend on food production is time taken away from governing. The ruling class's bureaucracy, full-time soldiers, artisans, gurwees, and traders cannot focus on their craft without the establishment of a surplus of food. Thus, the mobilization of labor, in this case through slavery rather than an increase in agricultural techniques or technology, was instrumental in the forming of a permanent African leadership caste. Historian Joseph Miller describes African state building as a process of aggregating human dependence. In many parts of Africa, Miller writes, populations suffered from high mortality rates and were subject to crop failures and fluctuations among other uncertainties. So the key was to acquire not just control over dependence directly, but to place claims on the future labor of as many people as possible by making claims on their descendants, which in effect created an African reproductive economy. In other words, the first step to harvest the surplus food needed for job specialization and state consolidation creation was to secure a labor force. Europeans accomplished this through the feudal system. The king, given his place by God through the belief in the divine right of kings, owned all of the land and passed down control to his lords, 
who in turn let the remaining 75% live peasantry lives of perpetual poverty. While serfs could work one or two days a week on their own land, the debts that they incurred essentially made them slaves in the manorial system. Since military service was a part of the serfs' feudal contract, the lords gained all the benefits of their peasants' labor with minimal costs or responsibilities falling upon the state's resources. This system never made it to Africa, in part because of how they viewed land, and secondly, because there was no equivalent African understanding of the divine right of kings. Rather than being chosen to rule by God, African big men earned it by accumulating power through any means necessary. John Locke's social contract imagines the state of nature in the same way that typical high school students choose to imagine pre-colonial Africa. Locke portrays the state of nature as a brutish world, where individuals that were bigger and stronger took whatever they wanted from anyone that they could push around. Locke then supposes that individuals band together to empower a state, whose number one job is to ensure security for its citizens, meaning that we give away some rights and money in the form of liberty and taxes in exchange for security. Big men's legitimacy derived from the security and privilege that they provided to their citizens, as Locke suggests. But African state building flips the formation of the state on its head. Instead of the insecure individuals choosing to band together to face those that are more powerful, in Africa, the powerful force the insecure to come under the control of their security apparatus. The difference in the divergent social contracts was choice. The absence of choice led Patrick Chabal and Jean-Pascal Deleuze to conclude that the notion that African politicians, bureaucrats, or military chiefs should be servants of the state does not make sense. Their political obligations are first and foremost to their kin, their clients, their community, their regions, or even to their religion. All such patrons seek ideally to constitute themselves as big men, controlling as many networks as they can. We are thus led to conclude that in most African countries, the state is no more than a decor, a pseudo-Western facade masking the realities of deeply personalized political realities. Far from a Lockean social contract, the government of big men were never going to stop at the liberty and money that you sacrifice to them for protection. They were always going to desire and take more. Slavery was the best way for big men to claim the value produced by the labor of people as well as to secure control over future labor through the hereditary nature of chattel slavery. Freed members of the tribe worked to feed their own families. The men who sought to govern needed to convince others to work to feed both him and his army. 
since slaves were more productive than workers and because big men wanted to empower and enrich their own family members rather than require them to work. Slavery replaced free labor. Early African states even viewed slavery through a family concept. The Boganji described the relations between their slaves and masters by asserting, if I buy a slave, I am his father, I am his mother. Since land itself was not valuable, big men monopolized labor in order to increase the production of goods that came from the land. In some ways, the surplus of available land made people that you could control more valuable. Slaves offered other advantages for big men, as they often fulfilled religious purposes, including the occasional need for human sacrifices in some religions of the continent. Large entourages of slaves lent prestige, as well as an inherent sense of wealth and power. That led more people to flock to your banner for protection. In hard times, such as during food shortages, slaves could be sold to earn enough money to feed your biological family. Stillwell provides us with a depressing account of what happened during hard times when you did not own a surplus of slaves. He writes that, during times of famine, if a father wanted to sell a child in order to buy food, he would first scatter a little millet on the ground and tell his children to gather it up. He would then tell the slave merchant with whom he had already negotiated a price to choose the child he wanted. The victim would then be tied up and taken away. In this way, children were sold just like chickens. With the proceeds gained, food could be purchased to sustain the family. This disturbing story was not the main way the slaves were acquired. War presented the most opportunities. The lack of clearly defined borders, peoples, and states made violent outbreaks common in Africa. As is true for every civilization, the victors had to decide what to do with the captives of war. There were three options available. Kill, absorb, or exploit. Since control of labor created wealth and power, the exploitation of prisoners was the most frequent preference. The implementation of high-density slaving consolidated labor for the state and served to underwrite the large economic growth period in Africa between the years 1000 and 1900. It was during this time that slavery became a fundamental part of the political economy of African statehood. Indenturing others not only served to build the state, it safeguarded its survival. While serfs served a military role in the European Middle Ages, they were ineffective in the militarized age of chivalry. This was because knights were professional death merchants whose entire life was devoted to learning the trade of doling out violence. Before the advent of professionalized African armies, Free soldiers that were called into duty were only part-time soldiers. In fact, they were likely either free farmers or craftsmen. Their service time, experience, and capability as warriors were all limited, 
As a result, slave soldiers often composed the core of the professional fighting forces of African big men. For us, it's hard to understand why slaves would effectively fight for the survival or betterment of their master, but they do. This is because their loyalty was tied directly to the survival of an African ruler. This is similar to the way that North Korea's Kim dynasty maintains control of their soldiers, despite clear evidence against their competence to lead. While 50% of the North Korean people are starving, the military remains steadfastly loyal because they are funneled all the food and privilege that they need to live decent lives. African slave soldiers were well-fed, cared for, and rarely punished by their masters. If they stepped out of line, they could be entitled to a second wave of social death and violence as they still maintained resale value to their owner. For the slave, another wave of dehumanization was intensely feared, for life could always get worse. Because you weren't being used to fight against your own people, one master was as good as another. Thus, slavery became economically essential to Africa regarding the growth of states and their governing political elites. Slave production sustained the elite and made the rule of big men possible because of how vital it was to the economy, the royal court, the palace bureaucracy, and the military. Over time, the benefits from the use of slaves trickled down to the non-elite households. This happened as slaves became more common and supply systems of slaves became institutionalized. Later, the Europeans would exhaust these supply routes in their endless craving for slaves. Like the hierarchy caste system employed by the Hindu civilizations, the entrenched economic exploitation of these workers allowed all African owners to enrich themselves without challenging the status quo. Stilwell reminds us that it is commonly said that power in African societies comes from people, but that power is also then directed at people. Now that we have looked at slavery on the continent, it is time to shift the expansion of the trade beyond Africa's borders. Another one of those fundamental misunderstandings that students get from their limited study of African history is the sudden discovery of Africa. On face value, the thought that neighboring civilizations in the Middle East and the Mediterranean do not know about Africa is absurd. Throughout the teaching of history, there is constant contact between these regions. A cursory teaching of Egypt involves the enslavement of Middle Eastern Jews, as well as invasions from the Hittites. In our studies of Greece, we learn of Alexander the Great founding the great city of Alexandria, before witnessing Julius Caesar of Rome crowning Cleopatra queen of Egypt. Despite this, we tend to think of previous eras of history as geographically inclusive. Thus, Cleopatra just becomes another Egyptian, rather than the woman of Macedonian descent that she was. While it was not customary for commoners to travel to different regions, it is wrong to imply that no one did. 
I take great pleasure in revealing how thousands of Romans departed from this earth believing that they had witnessed unicorns being slaughtered by the dozens in the Colosseum. The Romans accomplished this trick by taking African antelopes, an animal the typical citizens knew nothing about, and forcing their straight horns to grow into one joint curved horn by strapping the horns together when the creature is young. These were not the only animals that Rome imported for its sadistic games. It was the Romans that hunted the Saharan elephants to extinction. It takes a great deal of delusion to imagine that gladiators would fight leopards, lions, and zebras without ever encountering a native African. It is likewise silly to think that the Egyptians did not have knowledge of their continental neighbors to pass on to their European and Middle Eastern overlords. In fact, Egypt was itself conquered by the Nubian kingdom from modern-day Sudan. This led to an era of Egyptian black pharaohs. The Nubian civilization even built 223 pyramids within their own lands. Today, the Red Sea contains a man-made canal for ships to pass. But before this, the land was regularly crossed from the Middle East. Likewise, the Strait of Gibraltar is only eight miles wide at one point, separating Spain from African Morocco. The closeness of the crossing is one of the reasons that the Moors were able to control the Iberian Peninsula for 800 years. Their time within the borders of continental Europe ended with the consolidation of Catholic Spain under Ferdinand and Isabella. The Moors' retreat from Europe only occurred six years prior to Portuguese explorer Vasco da Gama traveling around the southern tip of Africa before docking in India. As you hear all of this, you should be thinking to yourself, why is he stating the obvious? Our snapshot images of Africa can create a distorted history of Africa. We look at the rise of these major African civilizations without providing any global context. While Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar conquered vast amounts of territory on different continents, the African kingdoms stayed within their own boundaries. When students returned to studying Africa, these civilizations have disappeared, only to be replaced with a conquest of Africa that closely resembles our own knowledge of the European so-called discovery of the Americas. We further conflate the destruction of the Native American people with the enslavement of Africans when we teach that Christopher Columbus's first thoughts were that the indigenous peoples of the Caribbean would make excellent slaves because of their docile dispositions. Somewhat unfortunately for Africans, the natives tended to die at a far greater rate of European diseases, thus resulting in the need for the importation of slaves to replace them. Africans happened to survive these illnesses at far greater rates because they had already had significant contact with the Europeans in the past centuries. We inherently know that the slave trade is destructive. 
But in our haste to make connections between the past and the present, we focus on those harms to help explain why, in conjunction with imperialism and colonialism, Africa has so many challenges today. Likewise, since we are talking to American students, we focus on the transatlantic slave trade while ignoring the trans-Saharan slave trade completely. To understand Africa's experience with slavery, we must discuss the entire story. Doing so also reveals that far from being a victim of globalization, Africa was a driver of it. Perhaps no story exemplifies this more than the tale of Mansa Musa. Mansa Musa was a particularly famous ruler of the kingdom of Mali. Mali is located on what would become known as the Gold Coast of West Africa. Like Genghis Khan, Mansa is the local term for ruler, rather than a first name. Musa was not supposed to be a Mansa, let alone the world's first proof of a global economy. The previous ruler, Abu Bakr II, was convinced that the ocean off the west coast of Africa was not limitless. Instead, he was 100% convinced that there was land on the other side of the Atlantic. Thus, he sent an expedition of 400 ships, which represented an insane amount of vessels in the 1300s. This fleet was equipped with enough gold, water, and provisions to last them for years. However, only one ship returned from the voyage, and it came back with quite the story. The lone surviving captain claimed that they had traveled for a long time until there appeared a river with a powerful current in the midst of the ocean. All of the other ships went on ahead, but after they disappeared over the horizon, they were never heard from again. Knowing that the Mansa would want to hear the truth of what happened, he faithfully returned to tell the story. Abu Bakr was enthralled by the tale and supremely confident in his own position of power. He promptly ordered the launch of a second expedition. This time he directed the construction of 2,000 ships, 1,000 for his men, and another 1,000 for the provisions that they would need to survive the voyage. This was an armada that did not exist anywhere else in the world at this time. Abu Bakr II opted to lead the expedition himself. As was custom for the Mali Empire, the leader was obligated to name a replacement to rule in his stead during the expedition. That man became Mansa Musa. Awaiting a return that would never happen, Mansa Musa's first order of business was to improve the international trade that was one source of Mali's wealth. The other source was gold. Sometimes by sword and spear, and other times by paying them off, he successfully cleared the trade routes of all brigands and obstacles. He also secured access to nearby salt mines, which gave him control over the two most important goods from the 13th and 14th century. 
This gave Mali a triple income. First were taxes on trade. Second were goods that were bought and sold to others at much higher prices, as Mali served as the intermediary along its trade routes. And finally, the largest accessible gold mines in the world. In the 14th century, Musa expanded his nation by taking control of copper mines, which were the most valued resource in the kingdoms directly to his south. His ability to tax gold, salt, and copper made him the richest man in the world. That is a literal title rather than a metaphorical one. Mansa Musa remains to this day the wealthiest man to have ever existed. Contemporary scholars believe that his wealth totaled $400 billion. For comparison's sake, Jeff Bezos, the richest man in 2020 and founder of Amazon, is worth a paltry $131 billion. In fact, you would have to add up all the wealth from the four richest men in the U.S., Jeff Bezos, Microsoft creator Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, and Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg to come close to the individual wealth possessed by Musa. As a public school teacher, I've not yet hit this point in my life, but I assume there is a point at which you have so much money that you literally do not need any more. To paraphrase the notorious B.I.G., there must be a point where mo' money just equals mo' problems. As the richest man in the world, Mansa Musa began to spend it. Besides creating a professional army, beautifying his cities, and creating an elaborate bureaucracy to ensure that taxes were efficiently collected, Musa sought to evangelize his faith. A devout Muslim, Mansa Musa supposedly funded the construction of a new mosque in his kingdom every single Friday for the entirety of his 25-year reign. If this figure is accurate, it means that Mansa Musa was personally responsible for the construction of 1,300 mosques. His devout faith and his policy of a mosque on every corner threatened the economic structure that his rule was supported by, however. After attempting to force the conversion of his people, a protest strike in the gold mines formed and spread to shut down the entire industry. Prioritizing his people and his economy over his faith, he settled the strike by allowing citizens of Mali to continue to worship whichever deity they deemed worthy. Around the year 1323, his 11th year awaiting the return of Abu Bakr, he decided to introduce himself and his nation to the world. He began to plan Ahjah, which is the Muslim religious requirement to visit the holy sites of Mecca in modern-day Saudi Arabia. This pilgrimage from West Africa would be one for the ages as Mansa Musa was determined to make his mark in the land of his faith. To reach the Holy Land, Mansa would have to travel his own well-worn trade routes across the Sahara Desert. They stopped at Cairo in Egypt before crossing into the Middle East and turning south in order to arrive in Mecca. 
In all, the journey was more than 4,000 miles. As a responsible ruler, Musa stopped and checked on his cities and mines as he went, so that his wealth would continue to flow during his absence. And he needed it to persist, because he was about to make a journey that would make him the most famous man in the Middle East. Accompanying Musa was his wife and her 500 servants. But her entourage was nothing in comparison to the 12,000 servants of his own, 500 of whom whose only job was to carry golden staffs and walk in front of him. Each servant carried four pounds of gold bars. That amounts to nearly 46,000 pounds of gold. 8,000 soldiers guarded the caravan, and another 47,000 Malians came along to make their own pilgrimage. Finally, 80 to 100 camels were each loaded with 300 pounds of gold dust, the preferred form of currency in the empire. All told, Musa traveled with more than $1 billion worth of gold. Musa ordered a mosque built and left enough gold to see it done in every town he passed through. The first bit of trouble for this traveling army came in Cairo. There, the Egyptian sultan insisted that Musa supplicant himself before the pharaoh. Knowing full well that he was both richer and more powerful than the Egyptian ruler, Musa agreed to end the standoff by instead bowing to Allah while in the presence of the pharaoh. They stayed in Cairo in order to rest and refuel for three months. And it is here that the tale of Mansa Musa's pilgrimage exposes the existence of a global economic system. His men spent and gave away so much gold that the currency was devalued worldwide due to oversupply. His generosity was great as he literally ordered gold coins to be thrown like parade candy when crowds came out to see the procession. Most southern European royal crowns still display the unique white coloring of the Mali gold that they obtained at rock-bottom prices during this time period. Once reaching Mecca, Musa secured promises for the world's greatest scholars and religious theologians to visit his West African kingdom. Shortly after arriving in Mecca, though, he received word that there was an open rebellion in one of Mali's eastern provinces. He decided to rush home, but due to his generosity, they were already out of the billion dollars worth of gold that they had brought with them. This forced him to take out substantial loans in Cairo to finance the rest of the return trip home. The act of taking out such a large loan with the interest that went on top of it re-established the world's gold markets, undoing the damage that he had unwittingly done when he had passed through the first time. When he returned home, he was pleased to be informed that his generals had put down the rebellion and the process had expanded the kingdom by taking over the infamous trading city of Timbuktu. The second item that he saw to was the repayment of his loan, which he did in one payment, 
eradicating all interest that was due on the loan. The size of this repayment once again sent the world market for gold into a deep depression. It took a full decade for gold prices to recover in Egypt. This remains the only example in world history where the spending of one individual directly affected the price of a global currency. Once again debt-free, Musa began putting to work all the scholars and architects that he had brought home with him from the Hajjah. This resulted in massive public works projects and infrastructure improvements, as well as the building of the Library of Timbuktu, a structure that housed more than one million books. Those that claim Africa has no history because of its oral tradition tend to ignore the contributions that Mali made towards the understanding of African history. Musa himself sat for and provided first-hand knowledge for several books regarding his own life. The university that he funded had 25,000 students at its height, and West Africa had become the center of culture and scholarship in the world. I recount the tale of Mansa Musa in such great detail to finally put to bed some of the stereotypes regarding Africa. The world clearly knew about the people and empires of Africa, as they were intimately interconnected through trade. They also weren't backward savages. Instead, they were at the forefront of culture, religion, and learning. They were not poor. In fact, their wealth was so extensive that it sent shockwaves through the world economy. Musa set difficult standards for any ruler to live up to regarding the fighting of corruption. Africans were not waiting around to be discovered by a confused Italian who had a mere three ships with him. They were sending the most impressive fleets that the world had ever known in order to explore the unknown. It also shows how extensive the trade routes were between the Islamic Middle East and the Muslims of the western side of Africa. We have already looked at the internal trade of slaves in Africa. It makes sense that some of this trade would follow those established trade routes. This is what is known as the Trans-Saharan Slave Trade. Islam has an interesting relationship with slavery. The Quran and Hadith both clearly outlaw the enslavement of Muslims. However, they also make it clear that it is acceptable for Muslims to enslave individuals of other faiths. To their credit, while slavery of others is tolerated, both books encourage the freeing of all slaves. It just doesn't obligate it. The export of African slaves to the Middle East was vast. Likely, six million persons were trafficked along this route between the years 800 and 1900. A further four million were sold in the Middle East and Indian markets via the Red Sea and Indian Ocean. That is 10 million persons that were forcibly removed from the African continent who would labor and develop the economies of other peoples. How does that number compare to those that were sent to the New World? The Transatlantic Slave Trade Database, which keeps track of slave ship voyages, estimates that between 1492 
1866, 12,521,337 persons crossed the Atlantic Ocean destined for a life in captivity. Just 2 million more than were sent into a life of servitude in the East. What else was different about the Trans-Saharan trade route? Owners in the Middle East had a greater demand for female slaves, choosing to utilize them as domestic servants. The male slaves that they did purchase oftentimes were destined for educational jobs, including working within the bureaucracy and the tax centers of the Middle East. The existence of Islam and its rules regarding the inability to enslave a Muslim meant that social resurrection could occur not just through earning your place within your society, but by converting to Islam, at which point you were automatically freed. The Trans-Saharan trade predates the Atlantic trade by more than 1,500 years. Herodotus, the Greek father of history, discusses the slave trade during the 5th century BC. The ancient Romans had established slave markets in North Africa. The trade increased with the expansion of Carthage, whose status as a terminal for the slave trade contributed to the wealth that Hannibal needed to lead an elephant army in his attempt to invade Europe. Instead of being forcibly stuffed in the cargo holds of European ships, these slaves were transported across the Saharan desert via camels. While the means were different, both resulted in the African social death. One individual in the 18th century describes the lingering effects of this trade on the modern population, saying that, by the 1770s, slave stealers were operating by kidnapping children during the night. They would sell them to some peasant who sells them to a third, and so from hand to hand, two by two, they are carried out of the country. It is not surprising that the Hulsa disliked camels, for they are the beasts that carry us to slavery. So what then are the lasting takeaways? African history is vast and incredibly interesting. The continent is not what you have been led to believe, and studying the subject of slavery and the role that the Africans played helps us to understand what happened to the birthplace of humanity. To understand the story, one must remove the preconceptions that the European way of state building and social contracts are the only way to do something. Mansa Musa proved what Africa was capable of, and we should remember that the potential remains to this day. Finally, the slave trade existed before, without, and after the Europeans were involved. In our next episode, we will examine the African slave trade in depth, examining the effect that the slave trade had on the rise and fall of West African nations through the development of the fiscal military state. It is here that we will look at the economic causes and consequences of the slave trade. 
I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you would like to financially support the show, please look at the show description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.